This is Ellen Marcelina, your host at Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. This is a new episode, which will be about NATO 2030. And I'm so privileged to have once again with us on this new episode, Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Now, as an introduction uh, to this episode, I'd like to read extracts uh, from uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's commencement speech at Sciences Po in January 2021, where he lays out uh, NATO 2030's three priorities. So I'm quoting from his speech now. NATO 2030 has three priorities, to keep our alliance militarily strong, make it politically stronger, and ensure it takes a more global approach. Let me take each of these in turn. So first, for a strong military alliance, we have to invest, to have the right forces, with the right equipment, and we have to keep our technological edge, to remain competitive in a more competitive world, but to have strong militaries, we also need strong societies. That is why boosting resilience is a key task for NATO. We need more robust infrastructure, power grids, telecommunications, including 5G, ports, airports, roads, and railways. And we need safer and more diverse supply lines, for example, for fuel, food, and as we have seen recently for medical equipment. Resilience is a collective effort, and it requires continued cooperation with partners like the European Union. Together, we must do more to identify and address gaps in our resilience. This means we need to take into account the risks related to foreign investments and foreign controls of our critical assets, infrastructure, and technologies. Decisions on investment and ownership are not just financial or economic. We should not let short-term economic gains undermine long-term security interests. The second priority of NATO 2030 is to strengthen NATO as a political alliance. NATO is the only place where Europe and North America come together every single day. It is a unique platform. We should use this more to discuss issues that affect our security, such as the consequences of climate change, and to coordinate the use of our military economic and political tools more effectively. This unique platform is also the best venue to address our differences, because 30 allies don't always agree on everything. But when we disagree, we discuss and look for ways to solve our differences together. This is what we have always done, and that is what we are doing today. For example, to deal with tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean, NATO provides the platform for Greece and Turkey to come together. We have developed a mechanism between the two allies to help prevent dangerous incidents and accidents and to pave the way for diplomatic discussions to settle the underlying disputes. The third priority for NATO 2030 is to ensure our alliance takes a more global approach. NATO should remain a regional organization for Europe and North America, but the challenges we face are global, from terrorism to nuclear prol proliferation pandemics to disinformation campaigns, and of course the return of great power competition with the rise of China. China is not an adversary, and its rise presents opportunities for our economies and our trade, but 
there are also serious challenges. China has the world's second largest defense budget. It continues to invest massively in military modernization. And China does not share our values. It does not respect human rights. It bullies other countries and tries to undermine the international rules-based order. Neither America nor Europe can deal with such challenges on their own. That is why I don't believe in America alone, just as I don't believe in Europe alone. I believe in America and Europe together, because together in NATO, we represent half of the world's economic might and half of the world's military might. So we must adopt a more global approach, build a community of democracies together with existing partners like Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, and possibly new ones like Brazil and India. We must step up to defend our values and protect our way of life. I do hope you'll join us for this new episode. This time we'll be having a discussion with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, who holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center of European Policy Analysis. He joined SEPA in February 2018. A native of Quincy, Florida, General Hodges graduated from the United States Military Academy in May 1980 and was commissioned in the infantry. After his first assignment as an infantry lieutenant at Karlstadt, Germany. He commanded infantry units at the company, battalion, and brigade levels in the 101st Airborne Division, including command of the 1st Brigade Combat Team Bastogne of the 101st Airborne Division in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2003-2004. His other operational assignments include Chief of Operations for Multinational Corps Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2005-2006, and Director of Operations, Regional Command South in Kandahar, Afghanistan, 2009 to 2010. General Hodges also served in a variety of joint and army staff positions to include tactics instructor, chief of plans, second entry division in Korea, aide de camp to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, chief of staff, 18th Airborne Corps, Director of the Pakistan-Afghanistan Coordination Cell on the Joint Chief, Joint Staff, Chief of Legislative Liaison for the United States Army, and Commander, NATO Allied Land Khmer in Izmir, Turkey. His last military assignment was Commanding General, United States Army Europe, Wiesbaden, Germany, from 2014 to 2017. He retired from the U.S. Army in January 2018. pleased to have Dr. Stephen Blank join me again in this new series of maritime uh, studies 
Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He's also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Welcome to a new podcast. I'm so pleased again to be joined by Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, retired, and Dr. Stephen Blank. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Ellen. Hey, it's great to be here, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, this podcast is uh, going to be a, a look at analysis, recap, retrospective, perspective into the NATO 2030 summit. And of course, um, the uh, recent summit yesterday in Geneva between uh, Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. I'd just like to read a prepared statement, if I may, uh, and take out a, um, a direct quote uh, from paragraph three of the uh, NATO 2030 summit that just took place in Brussels. So on the backdrop of Joe Biden's summit with Vladimir Putin yesterday, June 16, in Geneva, and the NATO summit in Brussels that took place on Monday, June 14, I would like to read paragraph number three of the NATO summit communique published on June 14. We face multifaceted threats, systemic competition from assertive and authoritarian powers, as well as growing security challenges to our countries and our citizens from all strategic directions. Russia's aggressive actions constitute a threat to Euro-Atlantic security. Terrorism in all of its forms and manifestation remains a persistent threat to us all. State and non-state actors challenge the rules-based international order and seek to undermine democracy across the globe. Instability beyond our borders is also contributing to irregular migration and human trafficking. China's growing influence and international policies can present challenges that we need to address together as an alliance. We will engage China with a view of defending the security interests of the alliance. We are increasingly confronted by cyber, hybrid, and other asymmetric threats, including disinformation campaigns and by the malicious use of ever more sophisticated emerging and disruptive technologies. Rapid advances in the space domain are affecting our security. The proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and the erosion of the arms control architecture also undermine our collective security. Climate change is a threat multiplier that impacts Alliance security. The greatest responsibility of the Alliance is to protect and defend our territories and our populations against attack. And we will address all threats and challenges which affect Euro-Atlantic security. So gentlemen, uh, I'd like to start the first segment um, and I know you've been very attentive to this uh, NATO 2030 summit, and then before that, the G7 summit um, in, in Cornwall. So uh, we're having a lot of things to look at. It's a very rich menu uh, that we have today, and I'm so pleased to be joined uh, with you again today. So 
If I may, in this first segment, gentlemen, I'd like to talk about the part about NATO thinking globally or the global partnership for peace and other architectures, the regional agenda, uh, the, 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 the three B, the three BCs, uh, Black Barents and Baltic, and then its engagement. We're seeing that um, NATO's engagement is growing over the region. And so I'd like you to, uh, maybe I'll start with you, Ben. Would you like to start the discussion? Yeah, Alan, I'm happy to. Uh, first Thank of you. all, I was really pleased with the, uh, the performance of our president um, over the last seven days. I mean, of course, every event, there, there would have been, it would have been nice to have certain other things happen. Uh, of course, Georgia and Ukraine not getting the mention and, and, and as much as I would have preferred. But overall, when you think about the series of events, uh, the president and his team have got to be feeling pretty good about, you know, the uh, uh, the establishment or reestablishment of American presence and commitment. Removed all doubt about that, and uh, you know, so much of uh, alliances and relate and uh, international relations are the personal relationships, and at least removing misunderstanding. And I think that probably for the summit in uh, Geneva yesterday. Of course, there was no big banner announcements uh, other than the return of ambassadors and the beginning of some uh, talks about arms control. And, but, you know, one of the things you just mentioned, cyber. I mean, clearly, that was a, a point of discussion. And uh, if nothing else, uh, unlike 60 years ago, when uh, Khrushchev walked out of the summit with John F. Kennedy, when he was a very new president in Vienna, and Khrushchev saw that Kennedy was weak and unprepared. And so that summit was followed immediately by the building of the Berlin Wall and less than a year later, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't think Vladimir Putin left uh, Geneva yesterday with any misunderstanding about the American president. That's a very good take. And I have to say, you know, President Biden, you know, related some personal stories as he always does. Uh, and then if you watched uh, Vladimir Putin's press conference as I did, um, you'll notice, you know, there was, uh, you know, an interesting take on, on that side anyway. So I think it was rather balanced. Uh, Stephen, what do, what do you think? Well, I think the uh, Biden team uh, achieved what they wanted to do, as, and Biden said that in his press conference. And uh, I think it, it, it enhances his standing and uh, that of the United States because the alliance is more solidified than it was. They've reached agree important agreements with the EU. But the important point is, uh, as well, not just a personal one for Biden and his administration, this marks a return to the globalizing function of NATO. Uh, this starts in the Clinton administration 30 years ago, and it's had its ups and downs. And there've been a lot of people saying that NATO needs to function strictly on uh, regard to European security. That is, the, the warnings to China indicate that, that that was not the course NATO decided to take. Same thing is true with the G7, where the G7 actually gets up and says it's going to challenge China with regard to the B, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which remains to be seen if they can actually do so in practical terms. And, uh, at the same time, they were able to restore a considerable part of the uni unity of the uh, transatlantic alliance. So on balance, it, uh, the outcome is very, very positive. Uh, 
for the United States, and I think not only for the United States, but for European governments as well. Because uh, for all the talk about European strategic autonomy and Europe this and Europe that, there is no Europe in a geopolitical sense. And uh, American leadership is, whether you like it or not, indispensable. Ben. Yeah, you know, Stephen reminded me, um, there were two very good uh, things out on Twitter today. One was about this, uh, the Chinese are uh, making a bid for somewhere between 30 and 40% control of the port of Hamburg. Um, and this is, you know, the latest in a series of uh, acquisitions and developments of other Chinese that gives them increasing control over uh, critical transportation infrastructure across Europe. That's not illegal, but it reflects a, a naivety uh, by some uh, European countries and a failure by us to uh, compete in the economic domain. Otherwise, we risk having a, a government that is not friendly, controlling an awful lot of critical transportation infrastructure that would affect trade, but also in a crisis would affect our ability to move. Similarly, um, Italy has, uh, or uh, China has made it clear to the Italians that if you do in fact do what uh, Prime Minister Draghi is talking about doing to completely rethink their relationship with uh, between Italy and China, which right now is pretty developed, um, the Chinese are making it clear, well, you can forget any Chinese tourists coming to Italy, you can forget any markets, I mean a total nuclear sort of uh, economic embargo and impact. And that's what we're dealing with. And, and so, uh, of course, the United States and the EU should immediately step forward and tell Prime Minister Draghi, don't you worry, we will figure out a way to make good. Otherwise, other countries um, will get steamrolled by the Chinese. So what's the point? The point is, as Stephen said, we can't, NATO is not confined to just the geographic limits of its 30 members because uh, the world doesn't act like that anymore. I mean, our economies are global, information is global. Uh, exactly. We, we, have to, we have to address the threats as they are, not as we wish they were. Now, that doesn't mean NATO forces um, need to be um, sent all over the world, but in terms of the unity, of the alliance, the you, the cohesion, the political leadership, and recognizing these global threats. Does it does it really come down to, gentlemen? Um, uh, I'll just read a direct quote from paragraph six a, which uh, it says, "We reaffirm the alliance's shared democratic principles as well as our commitment to the spirit and letter of the North Atlantic Treaty." Is there really now a division between democratic societies? And authoritarian societies. Is there really this um, this this grouping, as uh, Secretary General I believe said in a speech too? There's this one billion people, one billion uh, dollar economies against the rest. Uh, although, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there sort of like a, a division coming between these democratic pluralistic societies and then the authoritarian ones? Uh, I'd like to get your take on that. Stephen? Not only is there a difference, there has always been a difference. Even earlier, when if you go back to the Cold War, which was an ideological as well as geostrategic war, 
those states that were authoritarian states that were on the side of the West were always something of, of a problem. And it was recognized that they were a problem, but uh, there were overriding reasons for bringing them into the fold. Today, uh, it is still, and maybe perhaps even more so the case, that this is a contest over values. I don't subscribe to the notion that this is not an ideological contest. Uh, Russia and China have made it such, and, and for that matter, the United States is now doing it as well. Because, and despite the efforts of those who try to say that the United States should just simply follow realpolitik, it is against the nature of the United States. I mean, somebody as brilliant as Henry Kissinger learned this, that you cannot conduct successful foreign policy in the United States without invoking democratic values. I mean, Secretary Pompeo did this in his speeches, even though it was done in a very ham-handed and uh, offsetting, off-putting way. So there is an, an ideological dimension to the current struggles. Uh, it's true that, that Turkey, which is hardly democratic, is uh, an ally of NATO, and it's there for very good strategic reasons and should be there. But the, but the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans, all by their behavior and by their rhetoric, have agreed that values are critical to the current geopolitical rivalries in the world. Ben? Well, um, you know, it, it's not about one country or our group of allies and friends are perfect. I mean, President Biden kind of made references to yesterday. Of course, none of us is perfect. Uh, we're on a, we're all on an imperfect path towards equality, towards uh, uh, every woman and man uh, being able to live up to achieve their full potential. But there's zero path in China for that. There's zero path in Russia for that. Whereas in the United States, and I would say in Turkey, there is a path where people have the opportunity. And so that's why the uh, in the preamble to the Washington Treaty, which created NATO, uh, the emphasis on values, the shared values. And, and that's kind of, I think, what helps us get through the, the hard times uh, when we're really, really across with, a, with our friends and allies. It's like, at the end of the day, we still care at our core about those things um, that give our people the best chance to achieve uh, what they want. And I don't mean for this to sound too uh, melodramatic, but, but this is significant. And, and I think the administration's approach towards uh, foreign policy that's based on strong liberal democratic values actually is much more powerful uh, than the opposite. I'd like to uh, reference in this uh, communique that was signed uh, uh, in Brussels, uh, I'd like to just close out the discussion on this globality of, of NATO by mentioning Russia uh, and then terrorism, if I may, just to round out the discussion. So in paragraphs 9 to 15, uh, we're, we're you know, dealt with the, the subject of Russia. And then paragraph 16 to 20, we're on terrorism in Afghanistan. Could I get your take? Because, you know, as you know, uh, President Biden is, is pulling out the troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and then what kind of dangers does that represent for our democratic societies and our, our pluralistic and, and successful, as you so rightly say, Ben, that each man and woman has an opportunity. Uh, and secondly, um, Russia, 
and the Russia Council? Is it being reinvigorated to sort of, uh, is there a, uh, is there something to say that Russia will be joining or rejoining uh, this conversation soon uh, with with NATO and, and the democratic societies? Uh, Stephen, I'll, ta- I'll start with you. Well, there's a number of questions in, in there, Ellen. Um, we got to the NATO Russia Council. It remains to be seen uh, just how effective it will be. Uh, it's up to Russia if they want to uh, make it effective instead of a sounding board for grievances. Uh, NATO would be, I think, very pleased if, if actually Moscow wanted to convert that into some sort of serious uh, and effective uh, discussion forum. So that's one issue. Afghanistan is a much more complicated problem. We're leaving Afghanistan because, I, you know, and I, I worked for the military and uh, uh, General Hodges may, may actually disagree with this, but th- there is no longer any credible theory of American victory there that the American public will support. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of us may regret that. Uh, I happened, and General Hodges knows this, I happen to know uh, one of the commanders of the Afghan force. I met him at General Hodges' uh, house at a party few years back, General Nicholson. So, and I've written a lot about Central Asia. So uh, Central Asia is going to be an area of great power rivalry. And Afghanistan is very likely to fall back, to continue to be war because there's no sign that the Taliban is willing to live uh, with anybody else uh, in the government. So the problem in Afghanistan is that Afghanistan has never been, has rarely been successful in creating a viable state. And you've had factions in Afghanistan going back 40, 50 years that wanted to invite the Soviets in. And then of course, after the Soviets came in and they had to, they they tried, they had to destroy Afghanistan to keep it socialist and uh, they failed. But as a result, you've got a 50 year civil war going on in Afghanistan that brings in foreigners. And that's not going to stop, I think. Um, And therefore, you know, the issue in Afghanistan is not democracy, but establishing a viable state that is not a terrorist outpost. That's a clouded future. Thank you. Ben? So uh, two, two points in that Stephen raised that I'll follow up on, and he may be surprised how much I do agree with him. Uh, although he just reminded me there is a bottle of scotch that was missing from my house after that night. Wow. <laughs> well, it, it, it's gone. Man. <laughs> so, uh, so, look, uh, NATO Russia Council, you know, um, every time I hear a French or German diplomat or somebody say, oh, but it's so important that we maintain the dialogue, keep the, the dialogue never went away. I mean, NATO Russia Council may have shut down. Thank you for underlining that. The dialogue never ended. OSCE, UN, various other international venues and bodies. So that is a complete fairy tale. Um, But if this removes excuses for Berlin and Paris, uh, to take stronger action, then I'm all for it. Um, I once attended uh, something called the Elba Group. This is this is uh, uh, a creation. That I guess you call it a Track Two, where you've got retired right. Soviet general officers and retired American general officers. And I'm talking about some older. I was probably the youngest guy in the room, 
Um, and they sit there and it goes for a couple of days and you exchange views about what's going on. And it's intended nice. to provide another, it's, it's actually fascinating to see. Uh, I bet it I, is. I remember that guy's name. He used to be the commander of strategic nuclear forces, you know, or whatever. And uh, so I gave my little presentation as commander of U.S. Army Europe and um, through, through translator, we're all wearing headphones, but in this small room, in fact, this particular one was done in Belgrade. And I went through and said, here's what we see the Russian Federation forces doing. This is what we U.S. Army Europe are doing as part of uh, U.S. European Command with enhanced for presence power group, da, 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 da. And so <laughs> I felt like I was in a movie. Uh, after it was <laughs> over, the, the, the head of the Soviet delegation, former Soviet, the Russian delegation said in a very calm voice, General, thank you very much. This was a very professional presentation. I'm really, thank you very much. You lied, you lied, you lied. <laughs> I mean, he did everything except take his shoe off and start banging on the table. It was hilarious. And of course he immediately went back to uh, NATO violated all the agreements. We said, we. I mean, of course. it was hilarious. And after it was over, one of the other Americans looked at me and goes, huh, this is your first one, isn't it? And so, um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's, so that's part of it. Af Afghanistan, um, I actually agree with the president. Um, it was time to pull out. Uh, I was there in 2009, 2010 in Kandahar as director of operations for Regional Command South. And uh, I swear I thought in 2010, like, we've won. This, this is almost over. You could feel it. I mean, there was huge Afghan security forces, uh, governance was happening in places, not perfect, but it felt like, God almighty, this is actually gonna happen. That was 2010, and here we are 11 years later. And so uh, I am I was just the latest in a long line of really, really hardworking, committed uh, allied coalition American generals that thought we had almost got it done and that we were, and we were all wrong. Now, why were we, why were we wrong? Uh, first of all, the Afghans have to want it really, really bad. And I met some incredible Afghans, but I mean, we're talking about a culture. This is not Europe, this is not North America. It's, it's a different culture. And I think uh, we had to rediscover year after year after year what the culture is all about. And uh, that, that's part of the problem. We should have left actually in uh, 2003 or four at the latest. After we had accomplished the initial purpose, right. she left and said, we'll be back if necessary. Because that was President Bush said, we've won, it's over. Yeah, mission, the mission accomplished thing. Mission, but, mission accomplished, right. right. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't walk away from it. And then we got stuck in the Iraq at the same time. And I'm, at the time, I didn't care. I was a brigade commander. I was like, all right, this is going to be uh, for a professional this is what you've been training for your whole life. We're going to accomplish our mission. I'm a little older now, and I look back and like, well, what was the connection? You know, why why did we do that? So we got off track. Uh, the next thing, let's let's assume that we did have good strategic purpose and ideas. We never did what was necessary with Pakistan to deny safe haven. Yeah. And I don't think, uh, maybe Stephen knows differently, but I don't think there's any example in history where an insurgency was defeated when it had safe haven right across 
the border. And uh, the border, yeah. We just did not do what was necessary. And I, I imagine it was because we were concerned about uh, Pakistan's uh, nuclear weapons getting in the hands of extremists. Of course. Uh, and of course, we don't trust ISI, uh, their intelligence service. Uh, the next uh, sort of thing is we never raised taxes in the United States to pay for any of this. I, I'm not a big tax person, but you know, 95% of American families never felt it. I mean, it, they didn't feel Afghanistan and not much of Iraq because they weren't paying taxes for it. Unless they had a family member or, or a reserve unit from their community, it was something else that was happening. So that meant there was no pressure on the Congress or on the administration to fix it. So uh, I'm melancholy about it. I mean, that was the hardest job I had in 38 years in the Army, that, that 15 months wow. I was there in Kandahar. Um, and not only did we lose people and money and all that, and, you know, the, the image of people celebrating, oh, we ran out the Brits, we ran out the Russians, and now we ran out the Americans. Uh, it's, yeah. it's sickening, but that's not an excuse to stay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing those uh, insights with us. I really appreciate it. We have already come to the term of this first segment and the second segment we'll move on to will be about uh, technology and uh, what difference uh, technology can make and the challenges that we're having in that domain. So thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. back with segment two with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and uh, Dr. Stephen Blank for our second segment uh, on this NATO 2030 recap perspective discussion uh, following uh, the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva. Now i just like to read a very brief paragraph from the NATO 2030 uh, document uh, that talks about technology. And I do believe, and gentlemen, I'm sure you're much more expert in this domain than I am, uh, that technology and keeping abreast uh, with technological revolutions and uh, innovations is important. So falling behind, gentlemen, means degraded deterrence and a lower potential for reaping the benefits of broader societal technology adoption across transatlantic communities. Moreover, loosened ethical standards around emerging technologies can undermine the values that the Alliance seeks to protect and uphold. And I'd just like to sort of just to, you know, frame this discussion, uh, to throw in a few, uh, uh, you know, sightings from this uh, communique again uh, of NATO 30. For example, 6.B, I'd like you to discuss with me, if you would, 2014 Defense Investment Pledge. Um, also about uh, the core defense and deterrence in paragraphs 20 to 31, paragraph 32, cyber threats. I think that's one of the biggest threats maybe that uh, is related, directly related to the subject. And then of course, uh, paragraph 33 in space. Um, shall I start with you, uh, Ben, please? So I thought it was impressive that the uh, Alliance 
both in the communique and in the discussions and in the uh, new strategic concept, NATO 2030, which uh, will be formally adopted and implemented next year at the summit, uh, put so much emphasis on things associated with technology and uh, working together to improve cyber protection, for example, uh, creation of a particular organization, the Accelerator, uh, to help find right. ways to um, uh, help mil our, our defense apparatus absorb and uh, employ new technologies. Uh, I think the Russians and Chinese have made it clear that they are uh, not, they are pulling out all the stops on, on technologies uh, because they recognize the, in order to compete effectively with the United States and with NATO, they've got to find the technological edge, whether it's a hypersonic weapon, uh, cyber, or ways to undermine our traditional capabilities. Uh, the Zapad exercise coming up uh, here in the next, uh, later this summer and in September, uh, I believe one of the principal aims for the Russians is to test uh, their network approach, uh, which is something that they, uh, I think they watched what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, how the Azeris employed drones so effectively as part of an overall operational approach. Um, the Russians have capabilities their own. I think this will be a particular focus uh, during Zapai 21, and uh, I hope we're going to be watching that closely. Um, the burden sharing component also specifically talks about defense investments and modernization. Now, this is important uh, because it recognizes that if uh, our European allies are not careful, the gap between U.S. Uh, capabilities and the rest of the alliance will widen significantly. So it's, it's about something more than just European defense industry, which is not inconsequential. I mean, the EU understandably is focused on that. Uh, and France is home to so many uh, top-shelf, uh, high-quality defense uh, industry companies, but the gap is still too much, and, and so the Alliance recognizes this. Uh, finally, this is all about speed. Uh, our ability in the new security environment to figure out what the Russians or the Chinese might be doing soon enough to prevent it, to prevent the crisis from happening, uh, depends significantly on intelligence sharing, and uh, we've got to get we've got to find a way to fuse all the different intelligence sources that are NATO, non-NATO, space-based, as well as a person at the border, and get that information uh, to decision makers in time. And uh, the technology exists; we just got to get the policies in place to allow that. Oftentimes there's a gap too, wouldn't you say, uh, you know, once you have a new technology that comes out, for example, drones, you can't just fly them anywhere in, in, in a civil environment, for example. Um, so, so technology is often leading as it is like in blockchain or cryptocurrencies, that the legal part or setting, putting the laws in place governing these new technologies often is, is a step or two behind, wouldn't you that say? Is a, that is a great point. Uh, and here in Germany, where I live, it, it is a problem. Uh, you know, there are, uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on about ethical concerns regarding artificial intelligence, right. uh, hanging a weapon off of a drone. Uh, there's an occasional protest outside Ramstein Air Base uh, because people believe that armed drones are flying from Ramstein in Germany to hit targets elsewhere. 
So these are issues the Alliance will have to address. Yeah, thank you. Stephen. Well, the important, NATO needs to address technology because if it doesn't, it will be left behind and left being left behind in today's world is, a, is an invitation to a disaster. Uh, from a military standpoint, the next war is going to be fought on the basis of high technologies. As Ben said, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, earlier Syria and Libya in 2020 as well, and now the uh, conflict between Hamas and Israel last few uh, a month or two ago, a month ago, shows the importance of drones. Uh, but it, future conflicts are going to show the importance of uh, artificial intelligence, AI, robotics, hypersonics are already being deployed. There is reason to fear as well that Russia might resort to some form of biological and chemical warfare. But to be blunt, we've seen we've seen them use chemical warfare against uh, Navalny. Uh, against uh, Skripal in Great Britain and in uh, other cases, evidently. So that drives a host of concerns, ethical, moral, but fundamentally strategic, that need to be addressed. And then, of course, overlapping with all that is cyber, because cyber pervades everything today. And we have seen that Russia is not uh, hesitant about attacking critical infrastructures. Uh, they've done it in Ukraine, and the Ukraine turns out to have been a dry run for attacking critical infrastructures, not only in the United States, uh, Colonial Pen, uh, major meat right. company, and so on, but in Great Britain, France, Germany, Spain. Um, they've jammed electronic, they've done electronic jamming in Norway and Sweden. So this is part of NATO's obligation to defend against what is essentially warlike behavior from Moscow. All right, um, let, let's go back a little bit and dig a little bit deeper, if I may. Both of you are experts in this area. Um, what about uh, this burden sharing and defense investment pledge? Um, many countries, I think there's only a handful of countries, I'm not mistaken, that are only up to the 2%, for example, of their contribution to NATO. And um, before President Biden, there was a a lot of money that flowed back into NATO by its members, but is that a good way? And I heard some discussion on this. I just want to get your take. Is that a good way, really, this percentage of GDP, or is there another way of contributing, another way of measuring contributions? Ben, maybe as you, your experience is so vast in the military, could you well, enlighten uh, us, please? First of all, every president since Truman has complained that our European allies don't do enough. So let, <laughs> that, I mean, and our European allies all acknowledge that as well. Um, so that's there. There is a need for some forcing mechanism uh, or metric. Now, is two percent the right metric? Probably not. If it's the only metric, unfortunately, it's the one that our previous president seized on and used it like a, right. a stick uh, or a club. <laughs> and I think it had the uh, opposite of the desired effect, particularly here uh, in Germany. Um, secondly, there are a couple of allies that are two percenters that um, most of their defense spending is focused on another NATO ally. Um, so it, it doesn't, or they have massive um, personnel costs for retirement, pensions, and all that. So by itself, two percent is not 
the uh, should not be the only metric, but it is useful and it is a measuring stick. Um, secondly, a good thing is that the, the agreement was at 20%, one fifth of that 2% of GDP would go towards modernization, which I think is, uh, is a positive way to kind of shape this. Now, um, I think the Alliance took a, uh, took a swing at the, uh, what does burden sharing mean in a broader sense during this right. summer, uh, and mm -hmm. it'll be part of the 2030, NATO 2030 new strategic concept, which is good. The three C's of cash, capabilities, and contributions, all of these things should matter. And unlike when I was a lieutenant here in Germany a hundred years ago, when Germany was <laughs> on the front line at the inter-German border, we needed 12 German divisions. We don't need 12 German divisions now. The, the front is a thousand kilometers to the east of Berlin. So what we do need though is Germany, for example, to be this logistics hub, the transportation hub, the launching pad, a place for protected headquarters. Um, so why not incentivize nations like Germany to do things that the Alliance really, really needs. Obviously, fixing readiness has always got to be number one, number two, and number three. But after that, sure. we don't need more German tanks. We need more German trains to, to be able to move allies back and forth. Today, there's just enough rail capacity to move 1.5 armor brigades in Germany simultaneously. That's horrible. I, wow, that's so there's point. an infrastructure. Yeah. It's, there's it's, an infrastructure issue then. That's right, and which is why I would advocate for transportation infrastructure that has uh, demonstrable dual-use capability for mil or mil military benefit. There's got to be a formula that would incentivize Germany to invest in that to help the alliance. Um, same thing with cyber protection of transportation infrastructure. Last point on this. Uh, Germany still has uh, issues with uh, universities supporting the Bundeswehr. I mean, this is historical. Um, it's not It's not a federal law, but most universities in Germany uh, refuse to do any research that can be used by the Bundeswehr. Now, to me, this is a this is a moral ethical failure. Um, they're they're willing. They're they're saying yes. Young women and men of Germany can serve in the Bundeswehr and go to Afghanistan or Mali, but we're not going to contribute to making sure they have the best possible medical care, the best possible communications equipment, the best possible lightweight material to protect them. So uh, I think this is a place where Germany could invest in, in research through their universities uh, that would also contribute to 2% as well as capability. That's, that's a very good point because I think especially as our economies globalize or have globalized R&D is a huge component and I always you know uh, talk about this in my speeches or in my university courses that if you're not doing at least between two and four percent of GDP in innovation you're not making it you're not you're moving ahead and creating the jobs that, that you need in, in this uh, economy. Stephen, um, please. Uh I agree with everything Ben has said. Um, the fundamental necessity, one of the fundamental necessities of building security and not just military security, but economic security and what uh, NATO and other uh, writers and analysts and organizations are calling resilience 
is the improvement of connectivity, transportation infrastructure throughout Eastern Europe. Uh, we have the Three Seas Initiative that has been underutilized, but their purpose is to do exactly that. Um, I'm working on a proposal uh, within the energy field to, to help galvanize some of this, but there is a tremendous opportunity and necessity here to truly physically integrate the alliance in ways that have never been done before uh, and integrate East and West Europe through networks like uh, transportation infrastructure and so on and deal with the logistical issues. Almost every survey, for example, of what would happen if a Russian attack occurred says that NATO would lose because and for fundamental reasons that they can't get forces to the front fast enough. Since losing is unacceptable, you create an escalatory syndrome situation. If you don't want to have that risk of an escalation to weapons of mass destruction, then the conventional deterrence is necessary. At the same time, the economic benefits of building interconnected pipelines, high, uh, high, what is that? The high transmission telephone lines and, and computer network lines and so on is enormous. It's obvious to anybody who thinks about it for two minutes. Sure. So this is what really needs to be happening across Central and Eastern Europe from North sure. to South. Transfer- Transportation and, and, you know, when I was in Ukraine, I believe it was in 2012, people even in the countryside in Ukraine did not have internet, did not have access to internet. So there's that there's that internet divide, or see, or what we say internet poverty, as well as uh, we'll get into the next segment, I think is energy poverty. I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues. That's that I, could talk to you. I mean, that's yes. the point. Uh, yeah, poverty, yes, absolutely. Mutually reinforcing, it, it's a self reinforcing situation. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All right. Uh, any last points on this uh, subject before we move on to the next next segment, gentlemen? Ben, did you have something to add? Well, I, I'm glad Stephen said what he did there about resilience. This this is not just a buzzword anymore. This this is really in modern times, uh, modern security environment. Uh, when you look at where uh, our adversaries, potential adversaries, aim their effects. It's not at the armored division or at the aircraft carrier, it's at our society, either through disinformation or cyber, um, or the threat of nuclear weapons um, that uh, make it uh, difficult uh, for our societies, liberal democratic societies. And so I think Finland in particular, but also Sweden um, is doing a good job on addressing uh, societal resilience. Israel, of course, has had to do this for decades, um, but that's not so much the case in uh, the rest of uh, Europe or, or in the United States. I was I was astounded when uh, the Colonial Pipeline was, was shut down. Not the fact that it was attacked, but the fact that a major energy transfer system was so vulnerable. Um, this, this is... Uh, I think this is an area where the U.S. government is probably going to start extending its federal reach into requiring, I mean, if if a, if a, a bookstore or a hardware store or a grocery store decides not to do what they should do, bad luck. But when you talk yeah. about infrastructure that affects half the country, 
whether it's banking Critical. or uh, food supply or energy, that then the federal government's going to have to step in. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's, you know, food security, that's energy security. That's, you know, remember the blackouts in, in some of the big cities, you know, New York, I think, went dark at one point. I mean, the, the, these are dangerous times and these are certainly areas where, uh, you know, cyber attacks can take place and then the ransom with it. And, and you know, the whole, uh, you know, they, they paid the ransom. Um, and, and I guess I think afterwards they got it back was in Bitcoin or something. Yeah, they, but got, they got um, some portion of it back. But don't forget those blackouts also lead to uh, baby booms um, as well. So there's it's not all downside. It's not all downside. I like that positive ending. All right, gentlemen, uh, let's wrap that up for the second segment. We'll move on to the third segment. Thank you so much. segment three with my discussion with Lieutenant General retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. Thank, thank you. For thank, you. thank you very much for joining me again. So this is the final segment of this podcast, and I'd like to hone in on climate change and security risks. And I'd just like to read a brief introduction so climate change represents or presents a fundamental security risk, as you know, gentlemen. As such, there are three treaty grounds for climate-related action, Article 2, which seeks to facilitate economic stability, and we've talked about this in previous segments. Article 3, which commits allies to enhancing their resilience, that's one of our keywords that we've been using in these segments, and Article 4, which calls for political consultation when the security of any ally is threatened. I'd like to just press you a little bit further with paragraph 6G from the communique that came out uh, from the Brussels 2030 summit. And I quote, aim for NATO to become the leading international organization when it comes to understanding and adapting the impact of climate change on security. We are, we agree, pardon me, we agree to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions from military activities and installations without impairing personal safety, operational effectiveness, and our deterrence and defense posture. We invite the Secretary General to formulate a realistic, ambitious, and concrete target for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by the NATO political and military structures and facilities and assess the feasibility of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. We will also initiate a regular high-level climate and security dialogue to exchange views and coordinate further action. So, uh, Ben, I'd like to have you weigh in on this. How do you see this as a former military commander of Europe? Uh, how, is this practical or easy to put into place? Well, of course, it's not easy, uh, <laughs> but it is practical and it's necessary. When I, when I first heard in the last couple of years talk about NATO and climate, and I'm like, 
come on, what I, this sounds like for somebody else. But I was, uh, frankly, I was naive. Um, now I see that uh, this this is essential. Uh, first of all, um, from a security standpoint, let me give you an example. In Afghanistan, uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Army uh, at the time, Catherine Hammock, she came and visited and she goes, hey, Ben, do you realize uh, because you guys um, are not taking advantage of the near 365 days of the year solar power available in Afghanistan, you've got hundreds of gigantic, easily targetable fuel trucks on the road coming from Pakistan into Afghanistan because you have to bring in fuel. So uh, there's, there's a practical aspect to getting off of reducing your fuel requirements on operation as much as possible. And I was embarrassed that uh, it took the Assistant Secretary of the Army hammock to, uh, <laughs> to wake, wake me up to that. So that's there's a practical aspect there. Uh, there's also a practical aspect to, uh, look, you could argue about what causes uh, global warming or climate change, but what you cannot argue about is the effects that it is happening. And you take a look at the, Ar the Arctic, the polar shrinking polar ice cap. February was the first month in history when a ship sailed through the Arctic. Now it had to follow a Russian icebreaker, but again, that was February, first time ever. And it's only going to improve. So that means we have to think uh, about that. And then the third sort of uh, uh, practical example is uh, if the Atlantic Ocean um, raises three, four, five inches, places like Norfolk, our, our biggest Navy base, uh, Jacksonville, Jacksport, another really important Navy base, uh, all of these facilities are going to have to deal, uh, and this is going to cost a lot of money to protect seaports and navy bases from uh, literally uh, raising sea level. Being underwater. Thank you, Ben. Oh, sorry, Stephen. I beg your pardon. <laughs> well, as Ben said, it's not just practical; it's necessary, and it's not a question only of the cost of doing business or of protecting let's say vital infrastructure. Climate change causes droughts, causes that cause migrations that could cause uprisings. In key areas where NATO is called on to defend. The whole reason for the Arctic becoming an area of great power rivalry is due to climate change. So when the NATO communiques that you've been quoting from say that Climate change is a threat multiplier. They got it exactly right. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's a concept. That's a new concept, I think. And but it but it's true. You you take situations where there's threats and, and you multiply them because of the impact of climate change. Uh, there are people who believe the Arab Spring came about as a result of climate change leading to droughts, food uh, bread prices rise, and you just have a chain a causal chain leading to a revolutionary outbreak then. So there is that. Second, uh, we are using uh, so much energy that, uh, and as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, that energy provides a target for enemy activity. Absolutely. So in multiple ways and for multiple reasons, the impact of climate change cannot be uh, absent from any real security analysis anywhere, not just Europe, Australia, 
the Arctic, South America, and so on. So uh, this is a necessary step by NATO. It's overdue. I mean, we're not doing enough at home uh, to deal with the consequences of climate change because we still have too many people who refuse to accept that it's happening or that it's or that something needs to be done. But I, I, I can tell you, if you just sit here in, in the United States for a, a year, right now there's a major drought in, in the whole West, all the way up from California to Utah. Right. Climate change is a player. Hurricanes and floods. Uh, I know Florida, the Atlantic coast, the Gulf Coast, uh, all these areas are at serious risk because of climate change. And the same is true in Europe. The heat waves you're experiencing in Paris uh, exactly. and so forth, all connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I used to teach a, a course in geopolitics of energy, I would say, you know, without energy, you're nothing. And, and this was several years ago in 2014 when the Carl Schwab's uh, group came out with their risk report. And for the first time, gentlemen, for the first time in 2014, climate was considered to be one of the risks and came to occupy the first four positions in that category. Uh, so it's something to take in consideration because as you've aptly both explained, it, it disrupts economic activity. Uh, it puts our infrastructure at, at, at risk. Uh, it provokes, as one of my studies I did with my think tank back in 2014 uh, on migration flows, et cetera, et cetera. And we're seeing them more and more when you can no longer farm, for example, in arid areas, you, you've got to move on and try to find another livelihood. So if I may, if you would indulge me, I'd like to read paragraph 58, which goes on uh, from the communique. Climate change is one of the defining challenges of our times. It is a threat multiplier that impacts allied security, both in the Euro-Atlantic area and the Alliance's broader neighborhood. Climate change puts our resilience and civil preparedness to the test, affects our planning and the resilience of our military installations, Ben, as you were discussing earlier, and critical infrastructure, and may create harsher conditions for our operations. Today, we have endorsed an action plan to implement our NATO agenda on climate change and security, which I like the fact that they're putting them in the same phrase, climate change and security, which increases our awareness, adaptation, mitigation, and outreach efforts while ensuring a credible deterrence and defense posture and upholding the priorities of the safety of military personnel and operational and cost effectiveness. Now, uh, ben, as you were in charge of you know, Europe and your capacity uh, as Lieutenant General of Army Forces Europe, could you speak to some of these, these challenges that uh, the, some of the military forces will be, will be facing? Well, uh, you know, the Alliance, I think, is smart to uh, make this, uh, to focus on this, because the EU is already focused on it. And in practical exactly. sense, the European Union is going to require the nations to do certain things uh, to reduce the carbon footprint, for example. That, that will mean that military vehicles produced by France, Germany, Poland, uh, etc., will have to meet EU standards. And so NATO cannot uh, look the other way or say, well, that doesn't apply to us because mm. 
I think it's 27 members of NATO also belong to the European Union. And so exactly. EU decisions about compliance with uh, environmental uh, concerns and issues, it's, it's going to matter. The U.S. Army is already having to adjust uh, when, when rotational forces come over. Uh, we have to meet EU requirements for uh, environmental things. Uh, specifically vehicles that carry fuel or ammunition have to meet uh, specific EU requirements. Um, the weight per axle on uh, vehicles pulling, carrying tanks, for example, cannot exceed EU re regulations. So I think mm -hmm. this, this is a, a bow wave of, of things that are going to happen. And so it makes sense for the alliance, which includes the United States, uh, yes. UK and Turkey that are not EU members uh, to make sure that um, we can uh, operate in Europe with our European allies. That's uh, that's one uh, aspect of it. The second one, you know, this uh, one of the things that the Russians have been using as a pretext for what they might have to do in Crimea is a water shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, water, uh, a drought specifically, because Ukraine blocked the uh, canal that brings water from the Dnipro down into the Crimean Peninsula. It was built years ago, but after Russia um, uh, illegally annexed, invaded and then illegally annexed Crimea, the Ukrainians immediately cut off the water. So now you've got a worsening climate situation uh, or drought situation in uh, Crimea. And, and the Russians, of course, have already talked about using this um, as a reason that they might have to go in and do something. So an example of an environmental issue uh, that could be used as a pretext, much the way Stephen uh, addressed it. Thank you. Stephen? I can give you other examples. Um, climate change, as I said, is driving the whole transformation of the Arctic into a security uh, issue. The Russian government has a terrible record on environmental protection. But the fact is that we know from previous experience that environmental disasters in Russia, Chernobyl, for example, do not stay in Russia. That's right. We would not have known about Chernobyl 30, 35 years ago if not for Swedish uh, seismologists who are picking up the radiation in the air coming uh, west from Russia. So the Russians are now uh, trying to build a lot of energy installations in the Arctic. And they have created methane gas craters all over the Arctic. This doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it's real. If one of those methane gas craters explodes and happens to be near nuclear reactors, because there are a lot of those as well, we're going to have a second Chernobyl. And it will not just be confined to Russia. It'll be uh, Finland, Sweden, Norway, for example. So uh, those are examples in Europe. Uh, Middle East. Uh, Middle East droughts are likely to cause upheavals, socioeconomic and, 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 and high temperatures, if I may add, extremely high temperatures, you know, like you're seeing, this is not even, you know, livable temperatures, 50 degrees centigrade. Right, right. Uh, I mean, people who've been in Iraq will, you know, know this, and uh, this is the time of year when you have it. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to, to function over there, uh, but it also, combined with droughts, forces mass migrations, those people will start picking up weapons to forage for food and so on. 
So it's not hard to imagine this kind of thing. And uh, then you have many militaries around the world, like our own, are tasked as well with uh, what they call uh, assistance to civilian authorities in disasters. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. So uh, yes. we talked about the possibility of a Chernobyl-type disaster in Russia. The army goes in, and ha- is in- military forces go in and clean up. Same is true in the United States. Sure. Uh, same is will be true in places like uh, India and Burma. And these become international rescue operations in many cases, like the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean. So militaries cannot just simply wash their hands of this and say, this is not my affair. And government mm-hmm. certainly can't do that. So, mm-hmm. Because of course the situation create, create unrest, uh, instability, uh, migrating populations. I mean, we've seen what the, the devastating effect, for example, of the Syrian war, which some have said, uh, you know, was also created by climate change and pushing, you know, people that could no longer uh, grow crops and, uh, you know, there's other factors, of course, involved. I'm simplifying, but um, you can see that from uh, Niger in Africa, where everybody's just going north uh, because right. they can no longer have a livelihood. And the best livelihood in town is to join the Islamists and the terrorists or the jihadists. Um, so it, it, climate has a real effect on, on us. And um, I, I, I am so grateful for, for your expertise in this area. Uh, would you say, too, that the move towards electric vehicles uh, will also create um, the, the need for nuclear power plants. Um, and Stephen, you, you sort of touched on this. Um, ben, what, what is your perspective in that area? I mean, uh, we, knew, we know we had to diversify our mix, our energy mix, uh, as the IEA has saying for, for, for a long time, the International Energy Agency here in Paris. Um, what, what is your take on, on that, Ben? Well, first, let me say there's no doubt uh, we're all going to be using more increasingly uh, uh, electric powered vehicles, uh, but we're a long way from being able to have, um, so we get that where not only can you push a 70 ton armored vehicle, but also the ability to recharge the batteries and all that, that still requires access to a power grid. You know, yes. a lot of the places where we're going to end up fighting, there is no power grid or it will is likely to have already been destroyed. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are not things, they're all solvable, but the solutions will be very expensive. And I think they're still a, a little ways off. Now, to the to the broader point, of, if I understood you correctly about nuclear energy, yes. I think a lot of people here in Germany are regretting that Germany made the decision to uh, get out of nuclear power and at the same time, as a result of the Fukushima uh, disaster, and at the yes. same time, um, you know, they're getting out of coal. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you've got, uh, I, now Germany, of course, as you know, like much of Europe, is a forest of uh, windmills uh, to generate electricity. Um, you see solar panels everywhere where you used to see uh, cornfields and, and things like that. So yes. it's, not, it's not like the Germans are not uh, looking for ways to do this, but I think there are some that think maybe they, they pull, literally pull the plug on the nuclear power a little bit too fast too here. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we have a energy challenge up in uh, the Baltic region. Uh, our three Baltic allies are still connected to the grid that runs through Belarus and uh, Russia. Uh, yes. And 
it's probably another year or so before they are all able to get out of that grid and that dependence. Um, yes. At the same time, uh, Belarus has just started operating the Ostrovitz nuclear power plant there in the southwest corner of Belarus, which was designed by the same geniuses that brought you uh, Chernobyl. And uh, it's in a seismologically ge ge uh, unstable area. And what's really worse, our friends in Lithuania, you can almost see this place from Vilnius. I mean, it's just a few kilometers and they know that if there is an accident, uh, there's going to be a problem. And the, this accident, pictures, this, yeah. the problems that the Chinese are having with their nuclear power plant right now is not building confidence in anybody. All right, Stephen. Well, nuclear power, as, as Ben has said, is a problematic uh, uh, solution. Uh, Germany, you know, and there are probably still people in Germany who want to keep it that way, uh, renounced it as a result in the famous in the energy energy vendor in 2011 as a result of Fukushima and general sort of fear of nuclear. Uh, we've seen this in other places. I mean, I lived for 24 years near Three Mile Island, which is uh, famous. And you see when you fly into Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, you actually see it right right out of the airport because it's just a few miles away. Uh, but as we move away from coal and oil to gas and then to green and solar, uh, nuclear energy is going to be an answer for a lot of governments and a lot of people. And uh, it, we have to find ways to make it safe uh, for people so to, to overcome these fears, which are not irrational, because you have Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl, uh, you had the Russian accident in the Arctic, I think it was last year in Ninoska also, which involved a, re a reactor. So uh, nuclear safety is, is not some sort of academic discussion. It's quite real. Um, but the demand for energy is going to grow. Of course it is. So new sources have to be found, but they have to be made safe uh, for human uh, exploitation. and. Uh, Again, as Ben said, this doesn't come cheap, uh, but again, threat assessments in governments already incorporate energy. If you look at, again, to use the Arctic, because it's such a rich example of all this. If you look at the Russian threat assessment, the Russian threat assessment is that the West wants to seize our energy. It's an energy-driven threat assessment in many ways. Whereas in the old days, it was, you know, somebody wants to seize your territory. Here, uh, to use the Dr. Strangelove metaphor, they want to seize our precious natural resources. Uh, but that's what's driving the Russian buildup to a, lot, to a considerable degree uh, of military in the Arctic. And that military buildup crowds out the necessary economic investment in ecological and and ecologically and environmentally sound investments, because what they're trying to do is just simply exploit it for energy and build up the military. And when climate change hits with full force, as is already the case, you'll have bears moving, walking in the cities because their habitats are destroyed. That's We've right. already had that in the Russian yes. army. Uh, and what's more, when the ground becomes soft because the ice is melted, all those buildings that were built just to live in permafrost, their foundations become very shaky. 
and you have the makings of a huge ecological and humanitarian disaster. And it, this is not just going to stay in one country. Absolutely, and I think that's the, the point that we can end on, and I'll get your closing remarks for this segment, but uh, energy in itself, and, and we're trying to go towards, it's kind of a, you know, a catch-22 if we say we want electric cars, but how are we gonna get enough energy to power those electric cars? Uh, I know Elon Musk, uh, and you must know this, Ben is building this huge battery installation north of, of Berlin, near Tegelhof, I think, if I remember correctly. But, um, you, you know, there's got to be a way to store energy. And um, nuclear has become a, people are taking a second look at nuclear uh, because, you know, coal obviously is the worst solution. And I completely agree with you, Ben, about Germany regretting having left uh, nuclear too soon. And France almost did something of a blunder when uh, the environment minister at the time, Segelin Wayada, said, well, we're going to cut our nuclear, you know, uh, you know, powered 50%. But uh, France needs that. And we have 73% of our electricity that is, that is you know, uh, powered by nuclear. Um, so uh, th there's a catch-22 here. We want to be clean. We want to be environmentally friendly. But we don't want to, or not so much or into nuclear so um i i mean I'm, I'm i'm so curious to see how these discussions are going to go forward the perspectives i'll let you ben if you would make a closing statement for this third and final segment sorry you got uh, grandpa on the keyboard here trying to unmute <laughs> um, <Bye. laughs> you know um environmental issues kind of get thrown into one kind of category, uh, whether it's climate change or clean water and all that. And of course, these are different things, but they are related. And I would tell you, uh, I'm going to reveal my bias. Uh, the military is often pointed at as a huge polluter, when in fact, that's, that's, that's not true. It, it's the opposite. Um, every army installation I've ever been on, uh, we had more regulations, more requirements for uh, prevention of oil spills, for example, or, or fuel leaks, uh, specific requirements to do that. Um, I've gotten in more trouble over battery disposals, batteries that were tossed in the, in the dumpster instead of being properly disposed of, or for doing anything to interfere with uh, natural water flow on a training area. So it's, it's actually part of, certainly in the United States, um, a very, very specific part. We huge chunks of the of the fort bragg north carolina our biggest army post uh, almost fifty thousand troops at fort bragg north carolina half of that um, was shut down for training because of the red cockaded woodpecker it was an endangered uh, species and it wow. half the pine trees at fort bragg were part of the habitat and so my point oh, is my. Uh, the military is able to build readiness to 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 do our job and be uh, good stewards of the environment. I, I think um, so. The alliance saying we, we're going to lead the way on, on how to deal with this makes sense because you've got a hierarchical structure. People tend to follow orders, tend to follow regulations, and governments can do things to require compliance that perhaps are a little bit more difficult uh, uh, to do maybe in other parts of society. Let me close with this, and you'll appreciate it, given that you're in Paris. When I was the commander of U.S. Army Europe, we had a visiting delegation from the French Ministry of Defense visit our training area 
in Grafenwehr, uh, Germany, down in Bavaria. This is where it's the best live fire ranges. We do a lot of maneuver training there. It's, it's a huge base, but you've got hundreds of armored vehicles, trucks, aircraft moving through there uh, every year. And the French wanted, the French Minister of Defense wanted to come see how were we able to do such a good job of preserving the environment there in compliance with German regulations. And you know, the Germans, they don't goof around on this. Uh, how were we able to still do training and meet all those requirements? And somebody even said, you know, if I was a wild pig, I would want to live at Grafenbeer. This is the place. <laughs> it's fabulous. Thank you so much, Ben, for that closing remarks. Stephen, <laughs> you have to do better than that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that I can do better than a wild pig. Uh, uh, at least not on the air. Uh, but, uh, look, uh, Mato is right to identify this, as, and and the, and the Biden administration are, is right also to identify this as a central issue. Absolutely, because this this affects the entire world, and, and no one's going to be exempt. You're no, not going to be able. To, no, you're not going to be able to build yourself in a, a bunker somewhere and hide from climate change. Uh, one way or another, the impact will come to you. So, uh, again, uh, so. Uh, Natural resources are precious, and they have to be used more efficiently and more intelligently. Absolutely. Uh, and this should be an opportunity for governments, democratic, authoritarian, or other, to uh, be more cooperative. It also calls on our part to be more generous uh, with regard to countries that are re in real trouble in, in, in this, what is called I the agree. third. Uh, we have not been, and. Uh, you see the results in Africa and the Middle East of uh, multiple and multiple and interactive failures of governance. Absolutely. Uh, and, and fighting about water. For example, now in Africa, you have a major conflict—not a conflict, but a diplomatic uh, clash between Egypt and Ethiopia about the Grand Renaissance Dam with the waters of the Nile. Ethiopia wants to build a dam. Uh, keep that water Egypt because needs lives and dies on the Nile and so on. Then you interact with all the other examples of bad governance in the Horn of Africa. Uh, the civil war in Ethiopia, uh, where Eritrea apparently is involved, uh, wants to be involved or is involved. Sudan might be dragged into this. And, and you see that uh, environmental issues are not in any way separable from sort of the classic hard security agenda at all mm -mm. so at all. you know my hope is that maybe maybe biden and uh trump uh biden and putin uh, discussed this yesterday they said they discussed the audit maybe there's a basis here for more cooperation among governments and i, I would hope so uh, thank you I definitely 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 would hope so that okay. you know that we can um bring this to the fore as an important and almost a, a the important issue in my mind as you know i'm very much in tune to the environment i want to thank you again gentlemen for for uh discussing these very important issues post nato summit uh, i look forward to our next podcast i hope we can have a chance for the discussion and it was it was great as usual thank you so much gentlemen thank you ellen ellen thank you very much and i look forward to seeing you soon right. we'll see you soon thank you so much ben thank you Stephen.